Lord, thank you for giving us the inspired record of the Apostle Paul's labors and his heart, his life, his ministry. And Lord, we pray that you would give us insights of what we can glean and how we can emulate a good example today. We pray you'd open this up to us, Lord, and give us a heart to be true ministers of Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So folks, last Sunday we started a study called A Minister of Christ Jesus. And we took that phrase from verse 16, where Paul says, Grace was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So, in verses 14 to 33, it's my understanding that what Paul is doing is really helping us to unpack that phrase. What does it mean to be a minister of Christ Jesus? And the word minister, of course, just means servant. He was a servant of Christ Jesus. And we're prone to say, oh, well, this has no relevance to me because I'm not a minister. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a church leader. But if you're a servant of Christ Jesus, it has all kinds of relevance for you. There's lots of application that every Christian can make from looking at Paul's life and applying that to his own sphere, his own calling that God has called him to. So don't exempt yourself as we read through this text. Look for the nuggets of what God wants to speak to you in your own ministry, whatever that happens to be. Now last Sunday we began and we looked at three different character traits of a minister of Christ Jesus. What did I drop, Fernando? Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Just it. It's chapter 15. Romans 15 starting in verse 20. But last week we looked at verses 14 and 19. And we saw three traits. Number one, a minister of Christ reminds the people of God the truths of God. He reminds them. He's not always giving brand new truth. A lot of his ministry is simply reminding God's people of what they already know to be true, but they need to be refreshed and reminded. And that comes out in verses 14 and 15. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. Second trait, he ministers the gospel of God. That's his content. That's his message. And that comes out in verse 16. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then the third trait was that he boasts in the works of God. Verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So, Paul was reminding the people of God's truths. He was ministering the gospel, speaking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how that applied to people's lives. And then thirdly, he was boasting 
about what God had done and what Christ had done through him. But let's keep moving through the text and let's see the fourth trait. A minister of Christ Jesus seeks the unreached for God. Verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Now we'll stop there. Verses 20 to 24. I want you first of all to notice Paul's calling. Paul had a very particular calling on his life. He says, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I might not build on another man's foundation. Now that word aspired, it's talking about someone's ambition. Paul was an ambitious person, but not necessarily for himself. He was ambitious for Christ. He was ambitious to take this gospel to places where they had never heard it and never heard of Jesus. So this was a holy ambition that Paul had. Now notice he, he defines where God had called him to preach. I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So Paul was not necessarily an evangelist. He was more like a pioneer missionary. He wanted to go to unreached people groups, you might say, to put it in today's missionary language. <laughs> he wanted to go to a place that had no church where the people had never heard of Jesus Christ and he wanted to, to break ground in that place caused there to be a beachhead for the gospel, a, a gospel church to be raised up which would then evangelize through the whole region. So Paul was more like a pioneer missionary and he tells us the reason why he didn't want to do that was because he did not want to build on another man's foundation. He had a particular calling and he saw Biblical precedent for his calling in Isaiah 52.15, which he quotes here in verse 21. As it is written in Isaiah 52.15, they, they who had no news of him, that is the Messiah, shall see. They who have not heard shall understand. So there is his calling, very particular calling. Now, not everyone has Paul's calling to go to an unreached people group and present the gospel to people who've never heard of it. That's a specific calling that God gives to some. And we should thank God for those people that have that calling and are willing to sacrifice everything to go and fulfill it. Well, let's talk secondly about the great need. We talked about Paul's calling. What about the great need? I want to ask a few questions to get you to be thinking about this. Why would Paul have this holy ambition to preach the gospel to people he had never heard. One popular idea that's going around is that as long as someone never hears the gospel and never hears about Jesus, they will go to heaven when they die. We need to think that through. If that is true, then 
Paul didn't need to devote his life and make the tremendous sacrifices that he did to get the gospel to people that had never heard of it. In fact, he was a fool because he sacrificed everything when there was no need to sacrifice anything at all. And Jesus gave a foolish command in Mark 16, 15 when he told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That would be a foolish command because it's unnecessary. As long as they never hear the gospel, they're going to heaven when they die. Why would he tell them to go into all the world and preach to every person if they didn't need the gospel to be saved? And world missions is unnecessary if that's the truth. Worse than that, world missions is damning. It's damning because as long as the heathen are in ignorance, according to this view, they're going to heaven. But when you send a missionary to them, now they're responsible to repent and believe the message of the gospel. So in this view, missions does more harm than good because it sends a lot of people to hell that would have gone to heaven if you just let them alone in their sin. So why do we spend millions of dollars sending people all over the world to preach the gospel? and call people to sacrifice their life when it's completely unnecessary and everybody who's never heard the gospel is going to heaven anyway, that, that view falls completely flat in the facts of scripture. So what does all this mean? I think what it means is that people who have not heard the gospel will die in their sins unless we get the gospel to them. And so there is a tremendous responsibility on the church of Jesus Christ to care about our neighbor not just in our own town but around the world and that's why we want to be part of sending and supporting people that are going to unreached people groups who don't have the Bible in their language and don't have gospel churches in their country that's why I'm excited about Bibles for Asia and what they're doing in Vietnam because they are going into villages that have no gospel churches and seeking to plant churches there. Do you guys remember Russell Cochran and his visit? Okay, so here's a man that ha believes that God has called him to go to an unreached people group and for the next year he's getting prepared. He's being taught. He's down in Mexico learning. But at the end of that year, the plan is for him to pray and to find other people of like mind that will link up together to form a team and then go off somewhere, they don't know where yet, to find a people that don't have a gospel church or gospel witness and spend his life working with that people, getting them the scriptures, teaching them the truth, and then seeing uh, gospel churches reproduce themselves throughout that country. So to me, that's exciting. When we get to heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, those people are here because Russell did and we had a part to play. We helped him get there. Amen. So, praise God. If we do nothing to help the people who have never heard the gospel around the world, we don't love our neighbor and we're disobeying a direct command of Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. So it's part of our responsibility. Now that's the great need. What about Paul's strategy? How was Paul going to meet that great need? Well, let's look at it. Verse 23. Well, 22. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain. So Paul's ultimate objective was to get to Spain. Right? He tells us that there in verse 24. Also in verse 28, he says, 
Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So twice he mentions that he wants to get to Spain. Why Spain? Because Spain was unreached. Because there was no gospel presence in Spain. Paul already told us that he, he doesn't go to places that already have another man's foundation. He goes to where there's nothing. And he carves out spiritual ministry. So he wants to go to Spain because there's no gospel presence there. And he wants to go to Rome on his way to Spain. And he's hoping that the believers in Rome will send him, will support him, be sort of a launching pad. They'll get behind him and pray for him and help him financially so that he can do the work God's called him to do. Notice also he has had a longing to go to Rome for many years. Look at verse 23. For this reason I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. Many years. This isn't just a, <laughs> a little desire that comes and goes. For years he's wanted to go to the church in Rome. And he told us that back in chapter 1 when he starts his letter. He tells us in verse 10, Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often... I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul wanted to go to Rome. He was prevented from going to Rome. Now why? What prevented him from going? Look at verse 22. This is back in Romans 15 now. He says, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions. In other words, I can come now. There's no further place for me in these regions, so I'm coming. But I've been prevented because I had work to do right here. But now the work is over. I've accomplished my work here. Verse 19. He says, In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That is an astounding claim to make. Because Jerusalem to Illyricum is about a 1,400 mile stretch, and there's all kinds of cities in between. And Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel during that whole region. Now, does that mean that Paul had preached the gospel to every person within that whole region? No, it doesn't mean that. We know that because when he writes 2 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So, evangelism still needed to take place in this very same region that Paul's talking about. What, what Paul is saying is that he had planted gospel churches throughout this region that were now mopping up. They were doing the, the final work. If I could put it in an illustration, it's kind of like Paul was the spiritual marines that landed on Normandy on D-Day. They took the big hits from the big guns, but they took the ground. 
and they conquered that beachhead, and then the army came in after them and did the mopping up work. But he's like the Marines. He goes ahead of them, and he he's establishes a beachhead for the gospel in this region. <clears throat> and then the church continues in that work by evangelizing the cities that they're in. But Paul says, I'm done here. I've planted gospel churches throughout the region. There's no further place for me. I've done it. And now I'm free to go to Spain, which is my next place. But on my way there, I want to go to Rome and I want to see you. So there's a real sense in which the book of Romans is like a missionary letter that Paul's writing. He says, I want to come and see you and I hope that I'll find refreshing company in your presence and that you'll send me on my way which is talking about financial support, prayer support, just like we do for any missionary. It's like when Russell came here. He's hoping, I'm sure, that we would send him on his way, that we'd get behind him and support the work that God had called him to do. So, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible thing to say I have no further place in these regions. <laughs> I think as an application, we can, we can say... I might not be called to be a pioneer missionary to reach people that have never heard the gospel, but every Christian should have a burden for people that don't know Christ. All of us should have a desire to see people come to know Jesus. Right? And it should be a thrill when that happens. <laughs> Exciting, joyful. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have a desire to see people saved? Do we want that? Does it excite us to think of people coming into the kingdom? And are we willing to be involved in uncomfortable work? Like it can be very uncomfortable just to go and talk to people you've never met. But if you really, really want to see the kingdom of Jesus grow, then you're willing to overcome that awkwardness and get out of your comfort zone and go. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And I personally think that COVID has, has just sidelined us so that we have been stifled. We, there's not much for, that we can do. But we found out yesterday that that's not the case. You can wear a mask. People are okay talking to you. We don't need to sit at home and do nothing. So we want to become more involved in reaching out with the gospel. So here we go. A minister of Christ Jesus. Um, how did I put it? I'll find it somewhere. He seeks the unreached for God. That's what Paul did, and that's what we should do. We should seek out those who don't know Christ and bring the gospel to them. Number five, he labors for the peace of God. Verses 25 to 28. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Okay, let's see if we can understand what's going on here. He says here in verse... 25, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Why was Paul going to Jerusalem and how was he going to serve the saints? 
Well, if we just keep reading the text, he tells us that he's taking a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, historians tell us there was a great famine from years 44 to 48 AD, and that could have likely contributed to the fact that there was such poverty there in Jerusalem. What kind of Christians would be in the city of Jerusalem, by and large? Jewish. You're going to have Jews in Jerusalem. That's the holy city. That's where Jerusalem or Judaism flourished. So here you've got these poor saints in Jerusalem. And what does Paul do? He says, we need all you Gentile churches that I planted. We need to take up an offering to help our Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Notice he mentions Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia would be places like Philippi, Berea, uh, Athens, Achaia would be Corinth, and Centria. So many of the churches that Paul planted would be in this, this basin. And he says those people were pleased to make a contribution to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now let me give you a little bit of historical background about, hopefully this will make more sense to you. Jews despise Gentiles. Are we all aware of that? There was a deep-seated animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Jews would have no dealings with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with them. They avoided contact with them. They called them Gentile dogs. Some of them thought that God created the Gentiles to be fuels for the fire of hell. So would it be surprising then that when Jews and Gentiles are thrown together in the same church, the sparks are going to start flying? Right? That's just going to be normal because of this centuries-old animosity between these two races, all the Gentile nations and then God's covenant people, the Jews. And we see the same thing when we get through, Pastor Jerome's going to be bringing this up, I'm sure, but chapter 2 in Ephesians in verse 14, it says that Christ himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now this is really interesting. We've already, Paul's already told us that he's longed to see the church in Rome, and that he really wants to go to Spain. But what does he do? He goes the other direction. He goes to Jerusalem. He takes a 14, no, it's a 2,000 mile detour to Jerusalem, and that's going to take months of travel to get there and back. He puts his trip to Rome and his trip to Spain on hold to go to Jerusalem. Now, why did Paul do that? I mean, couldn't he just appoint somebody to go in his place and get this done and he could go on to Rome and to Spain? That's where he really wants to go. But you see, there's something else constraining him to go to Jerusalem. And let me submit to you what I believe that was. Paul saw himself as an agent of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Paul wanted to see these people who used to hate each other's guts <laughs> be brought together in love and unity in the very same church. In other words, when Paul planted churches, he didn't 
plant a Gentile church on Main Street and a Jewish church on First Street and keep them separate from each other. They all piled together in the same church. And can you imagine Jews are saying, we can't eat that, we can't eat that, we have to go to, we have to worship on the Sabbath day. And Gentiles are saying, why, why are you talking about it? We can eat that. We don't have to go on the Sabbath day. And they've got all these conflicts because of their culture, their cultural background. But Paul is wanting to see racial reconciliation. He's wanting to see this as a picture to the world of the difference that Jesus Christ can make between animosity, breaking down the dividing wall, bringing these people together that would truly love each other. And he's going to do that by bringing an offering from the Gentiles who were hated by the Jews, bringing this offering to the Jews. And Paul wants to be there when it happens. Because he saw himself as a laborer for the peace of God within the churches. And that brings up some, to me, some really rich application. I think we should do all we can also to bring peace and racial reconciliation to the body of Christ. And I admit, for years, this wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even think about this. I went to churches that were primarily all white. We had some Hispanics back at Sunrise, but I mean, since then, they're primarily all white churches, and I never really questioned it. I thought, I never really thought, why are they all white? I don't know if anybody else ever thinks about that, but you just kind of assume that's the way it's supposed to be. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. If, if, if Paul planted churches with all races together, why do we separate them? And I think the obvious reason we do is because cultures are so different from each other that they don't maybe feel real comfortable within somebody else's culture. We've, we feel more comfortable with people just like us. But since when are we supposed to gather based on what's comfortable for us? Was it, were the Gentile and the Jewish cultures in the first century so same, so similar that they had no discomfort level? Not at all, right? There was all kinds of differences between them. And so, if we are to follow in the steps of Paul, one of the things we can do is to try to, to bring reconciliation to all peoples. And that means to warmly welcome people that are not like you into this church. Warmly welcome them. Make them feel totally at home, that we want them there, that we love them. And help them. Paul, Paul was doing something practical to really meet the needs of Jewish brothers who are poor. It may mean for us doing really practical things to help somebody that comes into our fellowship uh, to show our love for that person and our care for them. So I think that we should rejoice when we see different nationalities worshiping together in one church and not separating or polarizing based on what country they're from, what race they're from, what color their skin is. Now I can understand if they don't speak the same language. I can understand like having a Korean church where they can't speak English. That makes sense. But it doesn't make sense to have people who all speak the same language all separating up and meeting according to their nationality. All right, let's move on to number six. A minister of Christ Jesus knows that he's going to be used of God. Look at verse 29. Paul said, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now that's interesting. I know this. 
Paul had a conviction that this would take place. I know that when I come, I'm going to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And he told us back in chapter 1 verse 11 of Romans, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So Paul believed that when he came, God was going to use him. God was going to help him impart a spiritual gift to them. He was going to help him to establish them in their faith. And the principle is very simple. When we step out to serve God, we should expect that God is going to use us. We should believe that God is going to be with us. Um, have you all heard the name William Carey? He's the father of modern missions. Anyway, he, had, he has a statement that he made that's very famous. William Carey used to say this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Wow. <laughs> so think about that. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So if, if out of fear we just stay in our own little corners and don't step out and do anything, well that, that's not the will of God. But it's also not the will of God to step out and then not really believe God's going to be with us or do anything, right? So, a servant of Jesus Christ knows that God is going to use him in his service. And he expects it. He believes it. And let's wind our way down now to the last one, number seven. A minister of Christ Jesus covets the church's prayers for the blessing of God. That's verses 30 to 33. And what we'll do here is just take this phrase by phrase. Verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren. That phrase means, I beg of you, please. <laughs> this is of the utmost importance, what I'm about to ask. Don't forget this. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers owe everything to Jesus Christ. They were redeemed by his blood. And so they ought to be concerned with Christ's interests, right? They are to pray for Christ's sake. They are to pray that his work prosper, that Jesus' name is glorified. So he's urging them by the Lord Jesus Christ and having an interest in Christ's glory. And then by the love of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit puts his love in our hearts for one another. And notice that the Holy Spirit is putting a love for the believers in Rome into the hearts of Gentiles who've never even met them. But the Holy Spirit is able to do that. Like he can put a love in our hearts for people that we've never met in Vietnam, right? It's the same principle. It's the love of the Spirit that is prompting all of this to take place. And then he comes down to what he really wants to ask them. To strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Strive. That tells us a lot right there, the word strive. That's earnest prayer. They would use that word strive in the, the Grecian athletic games when an athlete was straining every nerve towards the finish line. He was in a race. He was striving, agonizing. That's what he uses here, that word. Strive in your prayers to God for me. Which tells me that prayer might just be the hardest work of the Christian. The hardest work he has to do. He's got a lot of forces 
coming against him when he seeks to pray. He's got the world, the influence of the world, the flesh, which doesn't want to pray, and the devil, all coming against him when he, when he goes to the Lord. But here Paul says, I want you to strive together in your prayers to God for me. So we shouldn't be content with just having a few lukewarm prayers. You know, that should, that should grieve us if we have no heart to pray. It makes me think of Jacob in Genesis where he wrestled with God and he said, I will not let you go, let you go unless you bless me. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Now let's notice what he asked them to pray about. Verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. There were unbelieving Jews in Judea Paul knows he's going to come in contact with them and he's asking that God would rescue him from them, protect him. Basically, this is a prayer <clears throat> that he would be protected from people that hate him and want to harm him. These Jews felt like Paul was a turncoat and a traitor because he had converted from Judaism. He was very zealous for Judaism. He'd, he had turned his back on that and was now just as zealous, if not more so, for Christ. And so they hated him for that. And they had already tried to kill him on more than one occasion. And Paul knew they might try that again. They might try to kill him if he went up to Jerusalem. And so he's asking that they would pray that God would protect him. He says, that I may be rescued and that my service may prove acceptable. Now what service? The service of bringing the offering from the Gentile churches to the Jewish church. You see, there was such animosity between Jews and Gentiles that Paul did not know whether they would even be willing to receive this offering. He, he says, pray that they would receive it, that my service would be acceptable, that there would be a healing between the rift of Jew and Gentiles, and we would, be, we would show to the world the difference Jesus Christ can make between people of long-standing differences. And then he says, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. And so here he's asking them to pray specifically and boldly that he could come in joy by the will of God and that he would find refreshing rest in their company when he finally got to Rome. Now interestingly, God did answer these prayers, but not in the way Paul probably thought. Because he was protected from the Jews. The Jews did try to lay hold of him when he got to Jerusalem. Uh, he was taken out of their hands and and. A Roman guard took him into custody. He then was imprisoned for two years. He finally made it to Rome. But he, when he got there, he was in, in chains. And he was under house arrest. And it took him two years to get to Rome. So he probably got there in circumstances that he didn't expect. But God did answer his prayer. That teaches me that, yes, we should boldly pray for specific things but that we always, in the final analysis, resign ourselves to the will of God because we don't know the mind and the plan of God. God's plans may be different from ours. So we need to pray in faith, but also submit to God's sovereign will. So in all of our service for God, let's be utterly dependent on God. Do you hear Paul's heart? 
Please pray for me. I urge you, brethren, pray for me. Strive to God in your prayers that God will protect me from evil men and bring me into your company and find refreshing rest for my soul. Do you value the prayers of others on your behalf? Especially when you seek to do something for God? Do you value it when you have a brother or a sister or a church that says, hey, I'm praying for you? Well, Paul did. He really valued that. The other lesson we can learn is that prayer is not going to be easy and that we should set aside time to strive in prayer for people who really need it. So how important is your time in prayer? Do you have a daily time in prayer? Number one, let's just start there. If you do, how committed are you to that time of prayer with God? And are you striving for others and for their ministries and for the will of God to be done through others when you go to prayer? So what we've seen today, a true minister of Christ Jesus seeks the unreached for God. He labors for the peace of God. He knows he will be used by God and he covers the, the church's prayers. And then Paul ends with this beautiful benediction in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul called God the God of hope in chapter 15 verse 13 and now he's calling him the God of peace. Paul himself needed God's peace. He was going to Jerusalem. He didn't know if he was going to come out alive from Jerusalem. He was facing danger. He knew that he would be thrust into the company of people that hated him. He might be arrested which he was. But he could he could face those future trials calmly in peace because he knew the God of peace. And here he says, now that same God of peace be with you all. So whatever trials you're facing, like what are they this morning? Each of us has trials in our life. What are, what are the trials, the adversities that you're facing? Paul prays, may the God of peace be with you all. Isn't it true that if the God of peace is with us, right there, that's enough. We don't really need anything other than that. We just need the God of peace to be with us. And we can face anything that the Lord brings us into. into. Joseph in the Old Testament, he, he was in prison for 12 years. But the Bible keeps saying about Joseph, and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And Joseph grew strong in his relationship to God through the adversities. And God used him. So brothers and sisters, God is calling each one of us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ as ministers, servants. And so I just want to urge you to take the things you've seen in Paul's life, the good things, like seeking the unreached for God, coveting the prayers of others on your behalf, Expecting God to use you when you step out. Seeking the peace between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and bringing reconciliation. All of those are good, solid, biblical principles that we need to, to live out and walk out in our lives. So let's go to the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. 
Lord, give us a greater heart for lost people, a greater compassion for them, a willingness to go to them, get out of our comfort zone. Lord, let us not be content with a church that looks exactly like us, where there are people dying in their sins around us that look very different from us, but just don't feel welcome in our midst. How, what a tragedy, Lord. Let us be totally encouraging and welcoming to people of all kinds of backgrounds. Lord, give us greater faith that you're going to use us as we step out. And Lord, help us to strive in prayer for one another. Increase, Lord, our prayer life and our commitment to prayer and to seeking you. And all God's people said, Amen.